Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello, and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting-edge strategies and acquiring leads and sales to acquire more customers so your business can achieve its vision. And speaking of vision, we have got a guy who I think sets the vision. I don't want to pump this up too much because I think Kasim and I still, we sort of have to pinch ourselves the fact that we're actually going to be talking today with the one and only Ryan Dice, who as if you're a listener of this show, we reference Ryan, I would say every other episode. We used to talk about him quite a bit when we would talk about our commercial breaks back when Digital Market actually owned perpetual traffic, Kasim. So we can get into that here today. Ryan might have his own spin on that now that we've sort of exchanged hands. We're going to be talking about that a little bit. But today is all about Ryan Dice in the future of what it is that we're all doing every single day. At the heart of this show is it's a digital marketing show, and there's no better place to get digital marketing, education, expertise. And it all sort of comes from the guy that we have on the show here today, Ryan Dice, obviously over at Digital Marketer and a lot of other companies. So welcome back to Perpetual Traffic, Ryan. Gents, thanks for having me again. It is always a pleasure to be here, infrequent though it is. That was a threat, <laughs> Ralph. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit of a dig. I would always sort of say to myself, like, wow, Ryan owns the show. I think we've only had him on like twice. Shouldn't we have him on every, any, as a regular guest? But no. No, we went like 400 shows. I think you were on twice. I will now have been on 50% as many times when I didn't own the show as when I did. So that's really exciting for me. So thank you for that. Well, we can just change all that. It's just that easy. It's just a matter of getting it into your schedule here. So (laughs) every week, every week, it's just me. For those, for those that are listening and not watching, Ryan had a, a visceral head shake yeah. that was, yeah, it was definitely like, absolutely not. Every other week. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, you got to yeah. catch that over on YouTube. So, all right, before we get into the show, we're actually going to talk about our, our actual transaction, which I think a lot of people are curious about. We've obviously mentioned it. We now on the show is obviously it was a digital marketer show for six, seven years, had a great relationship there. We actually did do a transaction where everybody came out happy with it, which is oftentimes not the case in business. We'll get into that in just a second. So before we get into that, we always ask our guests, what nugget do you have off the top of your head that can help the listener of perpetual traffic in the here and now doing what they're doing, trying to scale their business? Yeah. So we did something really cool lately on the scalable side. Of the house. So, Digital Marketer's sister company is the scalable company. Digital Marketer focuses on digital marketing and growth. The scalable company focuses more on kind of scale, operational efficiency, sort of the two sides of the entrepreneurial coin. And at Scalable, we actually have an event coming up in a few weeks. And so, we're doing a lot of testing to promote that particular event, running a bunch of ads and things like that. And somebody gave us the idea of running these problem centric ads. I was like, what are you talking about? And then when he explained it to me, I was like, oh, yeah, 
this is the most obvious thing in the world. We used to do variation of it, you know, seven, eight years ago. It worked so well, we stopped doing it. It was one of those kinds of things. But the idea is really, really simple, but it's really powerful. What you do is you essentially come up with a list of 30 problem statements that your customer or client would have. Like, how would they say their problem? If you got a sales team, you know, you can specifically just ask your sales team, hey, what are some of the problems that you hear? What are the things that people would say in their own words? You can also look at doing searches for like, oftentimes these will come up in Amazon reviews for related products and things like that. But if you can come up with Brainstorm, or you can also use ChatGPT, hey, ask as a researcher and come up with X number of problem statements. They're usually going to sound like, I wish, I want, I need. There's going to be some kind of a problem statement. Brainstorm 30 of them. And then we created ad campaigns with an ad where the only thing on the ad, it was just an ugly ad, like a kind of goofy greenish background that was designed to just stick out and not look nice, right? That classic old school. Remember when every Facebook ad had like a hot pink border around it? Every Facebook ad had cleavage and or a hot pink border around it in the early, early days of Facebook ads. So this is kind of harkening back to the hot pink. Yeah, it worked <laughs> like a charm. This is harkening back to the hot pink border, ugly color and the only other thing is just the text of the problem statement in a quote. So one of them for our business, because this again is for entrepreneurs, it's if my business is growing, then why am I making less money? It would be an example of a problem statement that we hear from entrepreneurs. You know, no one at my you company- You already want to double click on that right now. Right? Like you, you having said, yeah, it's just, there's this visceral reaction in me that goes, I need whatever content's on the other end of this gate. Well, and that was one of the ones that won. So what we did is we ran an impression campaign. I don't remember how many impressions that we ran, but we weren't really interested in conversions or anything like that, but it was just the image. And then the title and description in the ad was just like scale your business. It was intentionally generic because the only thing we wanted to test for, we wanted to isolate for the problem statement, isolate for the problem statement. And we just ran some impression campaigns across it and ran it for, I think like 400 impressions, took the top 10 in terms of click-through rate and cost per click looking at those as a ratio, what were the top 10, ran it again, got it down to the top five, ran it again, and then use that to inform headline tests on landing pages, but everything else. And it was just one of the coolest, simplest things in the world. I think marketers overcomplicate this. We need to be speaking into the problems that we solve for. We need to stop talking about our freaking products, stop talking about even the category that we're in, how we're the best in this particular space. Speak to the specific problem. The sweet spot is problem aware people anyway. So just speak out to the problem, read their minds, engage in the conversation they're having in their own brains. They're likely to click. And what do you know? It worked. And so we got some really cool, not just new ad sets out of that, because then we decided, okay, let's take this ad copy and create a bunch of different ad variations based on this that looked prettier, that was more quote unquote on brand. Let's keep the ugly ones in too and see which wins. But informing the ads, informing the landing pages, informing email copy, it's just a phenomenal way to get real data that I just, I'm not seeing a lot of people do. And it was cheap. It was like hundreds, maybe a couple thousand dollars to run that test over a period of about 10 to 14 days. Makes so much sense. And the type of ad was the question or the statement, was it in the image or was it in the copy itself? And then you had in the an, image in the image itself. Oh, okay. Yep. Cut. Yeah. In the image itself, there was almost nothing in the copy. Again, like the headline of the ad was like, you know, scale your business. And the other one was attend this event on how to scale your business. I mean, it was intentionally generic. We wanted to isolate just the problem statement itself in the ad 
boom, there you go. Dude, that's a nugget within a nugget too, which is split testing the ad as a standalone element without worrying about the entire rest of the funnel. Um, we used to do that way back in the day, but I swear it's been five years. It's been five years since we ever took that approach. Yeah, all the time we do it. We got too smart for that. Now we test different ad sets and we don't isolate anything anymore. We're just too smart for that, I guess. It worked so well, we stopped doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it worked yeah. so well, we stopped doing it. I think that's a common problem with a lot of marketers, actually. And everybody, no matter what level you're at, like, oh, I used to do that thing and now I don't do that anymore. Like, one of the things that now it's like a new strategy is awareness, which is create like a blog post or a healthy, nice educational piece of content, which is a gateway into ultimately the solution that you're trying to sell on the back end. Just run that and then use all that data to figure out what your potential messaging could be for your conversion ads, or at the very least, just at the very top of the funnel, and then just retarget them with an actual call to action, a conversion ad. This is like a new strategy. I remember talking about this seven years ago. Yeah, that was the strategy when retargeting first came to Facebook. Right. It was buy ads to content to build your pixeled audience to then make the ask. And I remember back in the day, the net cost per lead was lower if we basically had them click on what was the equivalent of two ads. Because the initial ad cost was so inexpensive that because it was good content and it got shared and all that stuff that when it was an ad going to good content, it actually got shared. Then it could be, what if we just put the content in the ad itself? Well, we can actually put videos in these things now. Then we all just got impatient and greedy. And so I think so much of this is discovering what were the things that used to work before we all got impatient and greedy. Yeah, well, we got impatient, greedy, and spoiled. It started to work so well that money came. Like, why would I get in the way of money? And so we started running these ads that were converting like crazy. And then when that stopped working for all the various reasons that we talk about, then now it's back to basics. And I think so many direct response or performance marketers just wanted to go for that first touch sale or first touch opt-in, first touch level of consideration, you know, name, email address without putting anything in front of it. And there was a time, let's not forget, I mean, between let's say 2014 and 2020, where ad costs were still relatively cheap and you could do that. But ad costs and CPMs, although I just saw a stat from Meta from our partner manager, that actually shows that the CPMs for Meta has actually decreased in the last year. Which, those numbers. Let's double check that one. Yeah. But it just doesn't seem to make sense. But anything, yeah. whenever yeah. you got go- got a transmission from the Death Star and they told right. us. That, yeah. 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 Somebody intercepted <laughs> it. I said, you're fine. That's right. right. You're fine. And you have to go have a picnic. Yeah, it's it's going to be a bright sunny day. great. Everything's um, great here. Yeah. Just keep running those yeah. ads. Usage is up. New users are up. That's right. New babies That's are right. being born. They're all so on guys, Facebook automatically. Look at our stock price since yeah. the beginning of the year. You didn't realize, well, it actually cratered at the end of last year. But you know, everything can have its own individual spin. But the point is, is like that ocean for website conversions, I don't care what niche you're in, is an expensive, bloody red ocean right now. So you have to start thinking about different ways in which to approach the market. I think this is a brilliant way of doing it. And, you know, interview your sales team, interview your customer service team, find out what the real problems are and just test this strategy. Super smart. I'm curious, and this is a long nugget, by the way, but it's a really good one, that when they did actually click, where did they go? Did they go to a call to action page or was it more content? Because you weren't necessarily looking at that as your success metrics. You were looking at CPC, you were looking at CTR. But where did they go? I'm just curious on that. what that next click would be. In this case, they went over to an abbreviated event sales page to buy a ticket. And what was cool, we did actually sell some tickets. I didn't necessarily think we would. And we did two-step it where 
the first step was to ask for name and email address because I didn't think that we'd have a lot of conversions and I wanted our sales team to follow up with them to actually sell the tickets. I mean, so I think we sold during this whole test, I think we sold a handful of tickets, but those handful of tickets pretty much paid offset, for the cost of traffic. Yeah, yeah, pretty much paid for the test. It's not enough that I would have just kept running that as is, but the data was hugely valuable. That's awesome. Yeah, if you can test for free, that's a really big deal. It just puts you in kind of a friendlier position. This can also be done in a couple hundred dollar budget too. Like you guys went a couple thousand dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is really is obviously small. But I mean, this can be done. And we tell this even to customers of ours, like you can test this strategy for like 1% of your total ad budget just to see if we get any play out of it. I think it can be done at a very small scale. And you're going to see too, like those impressions that you get are going to be at a fraction of the CPM of the website conversion ones that you would run where you're actually asking for a name or an email or a registration or a small purchase, that kind of thing. So And it's a good point. What I would have preferred to do is just what you said, which is test for less over a longer period of time because the event is coming up quickly. We needed speed. And so we were willing to pay more for speed. But yeah, I mean, you can lower your per day because it's hard, right? You run tests like that and you're kind of pulling all your data over two days. I mean, it's probably right. But the reality is some stuff could happen in those two days. Like who you get shown to could be different than the normal. So I'd rather spend less, have it spread out over a longer period of time. But yeah, again, in this case, the event is, you know, the time was, I think, six weeks away, less time now. So we need to get the data quickly. What's the event? Tell us about if the listener wants to go. Is that open to the public? Yeah, Get Scalable Live. It is GetScalableLive.com. And so it is our event for bootstrapped entrepreneurs who want to learn how to scale their business. And if you're and so listening to this, I haven't gotten to this event, obviously, but I've gone through the scalable content and there's nothing more overwhelming than being, I think, Ryan, you term it as an accidental entrepreneur, which is, I think, most of us. And what you guys have done is really a miracle. It's like an instruction manual, but it's ad hoc that I can kind of take and customize for me. So if you're listening and that sounds appealing, this is absolutely worth checking out because the content's phenomenal. Yeah, thanks. And it is kind of like the old school traffic and conversion summit days, like when it was basically just me and Perry up there, you know, teaching what we knew, like that event couldn't stay like that. You know, we needed to grow, we need to expand it. The community was growing. Frankly, marketing itself got so much more complicated. We need to bring in more specialized experts, which meant more stages, which meant a lot of different things. But there was something kind of magical to just having a couple of guys up there sharing exactly what was working for them. That's kind of what Get Scalable is now. Again, I don't want to compare it to TNC. They're two fundamentally different offerings, but that's how we treat it. So there's not a ton of really outside speakers. It's kind of us sharing, my business partner, Roland Frazier, sharing like what's working across all our businesses to get them scaled. So I'm excited about it. This is the third year we've done it. It's sold out every year. We keep it small. I think it's only like five or 600 people. So we keep pretty small, keep pretty intimate. Yeah, that's where you're not lost. Like it's big enough for where, you know, there's people that can make an impact. You get the full spectrum, like a complete hierarchy, but you can still get involved wherever you want to get involved. That's awesome. Yeah, we're not trying to turn this into the place. Like Traffic and Conversion Summit, it became like the place for marketers. Like you just go there if you're a marketer, which I think is awesome in its own right. And I can go to some sessions and learn some great stuff. But it's just about being in the place and around everybody and reconnecting with people. This is way more of a, you're going there to, to kind of be in the room and to learn stuff. And yeah, there's networking and things, but I think it's good to have both. I'm a teacher by nature, so I way more enjoy the workshop style, the I can unpack this idea for an afternoon kind of thing. But I like all of them. I'd say if you're a marketer and you're trying to decide, I'd come to Traffic Conversion Summit because also, you know, you got Richard Branson there. And I can say that with all sincerity because if you buy a ticket to Traffic Conversion Summit because we sold the event, I'll make nothing 
from that. Um, Look at that. Absolutely nothing. Whereas if you come to get scalable live, I'll make hundreds. So um, hundreds. yeah, hundreds so of dollars. That's fabulous. Hundreds That's- of doll hairs. So when I went a couple of years ago, which was great, you invited me and it was some entrepreneurs who were just starting out, some that had reached, I talked to a lot that had reached that point where they had built it to a level and then everything was breaking. And it was like, it was the perfect conference for that. I wouldn't necessarily say this is early stage, but I would say when stuff starts breaking, I think the structures and the formats and the frameworks that you guys teach, even the workshops, I still have some of the stuff from that workshop that I went back to my team. We're still a startup really, but I mean, not a small company by any stretch, but it was, it was something for everybody. And I found like the networking was actually tremendous. I met a lot of really cool people. And it's a great event. So we'll obviously leave links in the show notes for that, but we highly recommend it here. Pretty much anything that you touch, Ryan. I know this isn't a suck up show, but you know, we do pretty much like everything that you do. So, you know, hey, we're biased here. Having said that, we are going to get into after this quick commercial break because I have to get paid. So fill in the blank as to what I would be buying in a second or two, but make sure that you do go over to perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. Watch this on YouTube. This is an actual podcast with Ryan Dice. This isn't like a synthesia.io version of him. So head on over there. Yeah. You're uh, getting pretty bullish with your opinions there, Ralph. This this could be AI <laughs> Ryan. This could be AI Ryan. <laughs> no, no, actually, you know, he's really here in the flesh. So we're going to get into the future of digital marketing and also the uh, transition from digital marketer over to tier 11 right after this quick break. And what am I going to be buying with the advertising that we've sold on this? Sensual cat massage. Sensual cat massage. And I'll let you decide as the listener if it is a sensual massage for Ralph's cat or if it's a sensual massage for Ralph involving cats. Again, your imagination. See you on the other side. So visit it at sensualcat.com. Just bought that. <laughs> Don't go to that. Tier 11 does not support sensual cat <laughs> We do not endorse nor condone whatever happens to those poor felines. Thank God I can buy more of it. That's all I know. All right, we'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail, as dad used to say. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com 
forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me, and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. All right, so we're back with Ryan Dice. Ryan Dice, and you heard of Ryan Dice. Hopefully you have. If you've been listening to this show, like I said before, we mentioned Ryan at least a couple of times on every episode. I wouldn't say on every episode, but Ryan's obviously been a huge influence on me as well as on Cosm. Here, we'd like to think that you know we've got our digital marketing start from this guy. And the funny thing is, I'll tell this story. Ryan's 43 split tests was the first internet marketing, digital marketing info product I ever bought. I didn't buy anything between that. I think it was like sold for like $47 or 27 I think it was $43. It was was like it really? A dollar for every split test. I think so, yeah. It was an amazing value. And then I don't think I bought anything for two years until I bought War Room, which was like $30,000. So I was the ultimate upsell. And I remember telling you this story. You're like, I wish I had more guys like you. So you go from that to this. So anyways, we ended up going from that small split to 43 split test is my entry level offer all the way to joining War Room. And this was back, oh my God, seven plus years ago. And I remember I was at, I think Molly had invited me to, let's see, I forget which conference it was for Digital Marketer. But anyway, so the pitch at the end was for War Room. And I realized, okay, I had about $11,000 in my checking account at that point in time. And we did not have a million-dollar business, which was, <laughs> which was sort of an entry point. We we're kind of close. We we're getting there. Not quite there as of yet. And million dollars in ad spend under management. Million dollars in ad spend under management. That was yeah, probably yeah. more like it, not necessarily revenue. We would say million dollar momentum back in the day. Right. right. You're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You're on your way. Yeah. So it was actually, it was the machine event. So I was like, this is great. You came on, yep. you pitched it. I was like, you know what? I think I want to join this thing because first off, I knew like the type of marketer that was in that room, the type of business that was in that room could really help the business. I knew that I would learn a whole lot. Obviously, I might have the chance of actually meeting and talking with you at some point, which I eventually did, and we became friends. And it was one of those events and one of those moments in my life where I was like, do you do it? Do you not do it? And it was the ballsiest move, I think, at that point in time. I wrote a check for 10 grand. I just happened to have it. And I knew the check would clear with like a thousand to spare, and that was it. And from that point on, like really, my business from not only – your advice and all the things that we were able to do inside War Room. We met a lot of folks. This is when Facebook ads was really sort of first taking off. You know, we called ourselves sort of the agency at that point. We didn't really even have Tier 11 as a brand name. And everything just sort of went from there. We got a lot of customers from there and a lot of great advice. And then we, I think it was maybe the third or fourth event where you got up on stage and you said, Hey, who here, raise your hand, has a podcast? And I remember there was like one guy at that point. I don't know. He's had like really long hair, not like Cossum, but like, you know, kind of scraggly. And like, he obviously knew what he was doing, but he was the only guy who raised his hand. I was like, wow, Brian wants to start a podcast. And then the next one, I remember we were at, let's see, the Beverly Hills Hotel that we always went to. Yeah, the Montage. Montage, Montage Beverly Hills. Montage Beverly Hills. You did it again. You're saying, all right, who here has a podcast? And two people raised their hands. like, you know, I'd really like to start a podcast someday. So I remember I texted my then partner, Keith, 
And I had already known Molly now for maybe six months or so from that event. I said, hey, you want to start a podcast? And all three of us on this group text were like, yeah, that's great. I said, well, Ryan just said he wanted to start a podcast. Maybe we could start a podcast with you guys and have it under the digital marketer umbrella. And they're like, go for it. I'm like, all right, I've never talked to Ryan before. So at the break, I remember you were like grabbing coffee at one of those big silver coffee things. Like everything is silver and shiny, you know, at this hotel that I was clearly in over my head or room that I couldn't afford. And so I went up to you, I asked you, I said, hey, would you like to start a podcast? And your answer was yes. And I was like, great. And then you said, I don't actually want to be on the show though, but I've got just the person that might want to be your co-host. And I said, is it Molly Pittman? And you're like, yeah. It's like, I already asked her and she's in. And you're like, Jesus, I have, I have no authority in this company. People are doing stuff behind my back all the time. I don't even know about. And that's how it all started. And so that was eight years ago. And we obviously worked together. We launched it. We did like five shows, launched it together, figured out the name Perpetual Traffic, and then started it from there and had a great run. Obviously, a couple of co-hosts later, Cosmonauts sort of came on the scene. Then about late last year... <laughs> nice of you to crowbar me into that story, Ralph. I'm not relevant at all, really. Came, in the yeah, it was yeah, like but, just another hired yeah. gun. You know, I have like two guns in just like looking yeah. at you like... Yeah, right. uh, yeah. finally. Get a, you know, get a haircut I, and get a real job, buddy. We <laughs> needed a guy with long hair. That, yeah. and he, so he fit the bill, you know? Yeah. Fit the suit, so to speak. So we had this, what I felt was a very successful period of time, and it just didn't really fit into your guys' business model. So maybe we can take it from there, sort of how this whole thing transpired, because obviously here we are still talking with each other. It all worked out for everyone in the end. But maybe tell us about like what was it in your business that had changed? Why did perpetual traffic no longer fit in with what you guys were doing with Scalable and with Digital Marketer? And then we can take it from that point. I'll give you a little bit of backstory maybe you're not even aware of. So I was toying with the idea of having a podcast. And you're right. I didn't want to do a podcast. I wanted to have a podcast, which to me is a different animal. I've always more identified as a publisher than a creator or an influencer or anything like that. I never really wanted to be in the limelight as much. I'm in it plenty, but it's not really necessarily a role that I ever embraced. But I felt like as a business, it's something that, that we should have a digital marketer. I was kind of toying with the idea. I'm prone to thinking out loud. And I was thinking out loud one day in front of the team. And yeah, Molly Pittman, who was our head of marketing at the time, was like, yeah, I want to do that. Let's do it. And I was like, absolutely. I love the idea of you doing it. She's like, great, I'm going to do it. I was like, no, don't do it yet. Because we're pretty thorough in terms of how we do our strategic planning. We make sure we've got certain key initiatives and there's certain things that we'll green light in a quarter. I was like, don't do it now. Let's gather some research. We got enough stuff to say grace over here. Let's maybe pick it up next quarter if things are going well. And she's like, but I don't want to wait that long. And I was like, okay, I'll tell you what. If we can get all this stuff done before the end of the quarter, then fine, we can go nuts. And so when I was going out to War Room and saying like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, that was me gathering information for something that's going to happen way in the future. Well, around that same time, sure enough, we'd hit all our goals and we got all our stuff accomplished before. And so I'm always like, I'm in, I want to do it. That was around the same time when you had reached out to her. That's why she pounced. But the truth is, we never really went into this strategically. It was always something that, you know, having a podcast was always something that I knew we needed, but it wasn't clear to me how it was going to fit back in. And because we didn't necessarily approach it strategically, it never really had like a home inside of Digital Marketer. You know, it was this separate brand. It was run by other people. Eventually, you know, Molly left the company and started her own thing. And now she's with Ezra, you and I mean, like nobody was in Digital Marketer. And so it wasn't really like Digital Marketer's podcast, which I don't care about that. 
I don't have any pride of ownership, but it's like, if we're kind of funding this thing, if we're going to give it some energy, it needs to flow back in. And this is a mistake that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners make. They're not clear on how they actually create value as a company, how they create and capture value. And they haven't mapped it out. They haven't visualized it. They haven't said, this is how we actually turn strangers into leads, into customers, into raving fans. They haven't mapped that out. You know, I've been talking about this forever, whether it was the million dollar napkin or the customer value journey or growth engines, something we've been talking about and something I'm very adamant. Anything that we're going to do needs to funnel back into an existing proven growth engine. And the podcast, it could do it sort of through ads. It could do it sort of through host reads, but it didn't have a clear through line. And because of that, I just never got the resources that I felt like it deserved. But I always loved the show and I always loved the brand and the following and what it produced. And I mean, it came to a point where it's like, we are not the best people to own this because we are not honoring this asset. We're not a good steward of this asset, not because the asset isn't worth it. It's because it is worth it that it should be under another steward. You know, at the time, like we had different leadership at Digital Marketer who felt that there needed to be a Digital Marketer branded podcast. And so Digital Marketer now had launched its own podcast. So I'm like, how many podcasts are we going to have for this one freaking brand? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. So that was why ultimately it was like, hey, maybe we should figure this out. And honestly, dude, I don't remember if you reached out to me or if I reached out to you. I don't remember the triggering event, but I think multiple people realize come to the same conclusions at the same time because everybody's feeling the same thing. Everybody has good intentions. But yeah, that was when we were reevaluating at the end of last year. What are the assets that we have that are currently underutilized? Do we want to double down on them or do we want to exit them? We had to be honest and look at perpetual traffic and say, this just isn't an asset that we are going to be a good steward of. Let's look at exiting it. And so that's ultimately the backstory and where it ended up. And I'm really happy that it found an amazing home with you guys and that it's still rocking and rolling and that you still let me on from time to time. <laughs> well, even more so now. The funny thing was, is that I think it was an email that Richard had sent me. It was crazy because we had just come out of our quarterly meeting and we said, is there an opportunity to potentially purchase the show? And I was like, hmm, how do I approach this? I'm like, all right, well, I'll probably maybe email Ryan or text him maybe after the first of the year. And then you, it was right around, I think, Thanksgiving, like before Thanksgiving, and it all sort of happened really quickly. The funny thing was, is it was already on our radar as something that we wanted to potentially double down on. Because I think it was it was always doing well, but it's like, what if we really put a lot of assets behind, a lot of power behind it, not necessarily from tier 11, but for perpetual traffic, its own brand that then would potentially feed other projects. And obviously tier 11 being one of those things as an agency, and it just made sense. And obviously it was helpful for us from a credibility standpoint, from an authority standpoint. And also we do get leads from it, which is obviously helpful as well. But the point was, is like we were thinking along those same lines. And when the email happened, I was like, oh, well, this is a great opportunity. Once we sort of understood where it fit into your portfolio, I'm like, all right, now this makes sense. But for me, it was like it was an opportunity for us to sort of exit that partnership. And I always sort of felt like you guys weren't getting enough out of it. So it was like, what can I do to help Digital Marketer and you all specifically get more out of the show? And even with that, we couldn't really make it work for you. And so it was a logical step for us to potentially do this kind of arrangement, which which ended out working really, really well. We've done a number of transactions. We're in the middle of a couple right now. And 
it was an easy thing. We just had to figure out like what the price was. And in podcasting, it's really hard to tag a value on price. And I think we've talked about this. Greg Smith was on the show talking about like how to exit your business. There's really no model for pricing a podcast because it's hard. It's like without the hosts, maybe it's less value. Without digital marketers list and promotion behind it, it's less valuable. So how do you actually value it? And I think we had differing views of what that is. But at the end of the day, it's all about like, what's the value to you and what you feel that is fair. Fair is always like air quotes, who the hell knows what fair is. But I think if you're selling a business like in the agency model, like we know what agencies sell for. There's multiples that they sell for. In the software business, there's multiples that they sell for. You know, bricks and mortar, the same sort of thing. But with a podcast, it was a little bit harder to figure that out. And I think that was one of the more challenging things to do. But I think we were both of the same mindset, like, let's try and do the right thing because we, first off, both respected each other, but also wanted to respect the brand and put it in the best home possible. Yeah. And nobody went about it with a, well, we've got to decide by this date or we're just going to blow the whole thing up. And I think that helped. I think that that's when negotiations like these can go bad is when there's essentially a kill switch involved. And sometimes, look, you have no choice but to introduce that and have a forcing function. But we didn't start there. So we had both agreed that like, look, we're going to continue to fund this show, like basically into perpetuity. Like we're going to figure this out. Just our desire is to exit it and we won't be able to fund it forever. We want to be able to say like, Let's figure this out because we're not going to kill it next month or the month after that. But if we don't have a plan by the end of the year or going into January of next year, then we probably are going to make a plan to sunset it. We're just going to have to do that. That's the reality of it. And it is hard. It's hard to establish evaluation on things that don't have a clear market rate. And you know, I know the perspective that we took is at what point does it make sense for us to give up the possible future opportunity? Valuing it based on what it was generating today for us wasn't really helpful because it wasn't much, which is why we wanted to sell. So we had to be honest about that. We didn't have all the insights on what it was worth to you trying to make assumptions there. It's okay, but like you would bring that. So from our perspective, it was basically, well, anything really below this amount, we'd rather just keep it, keep the brand. Even if we got to sunset the thing, you know, it's always hard to revive things once they've gone, but like anything below this, we'll take our chances. It's not worth selling anything over that. And it's worth doing because we had a specific use of funds in mind. We can take this revenue that's coming from, we can deploy it into this particular area where we know we'll get a greater return than what this thing is. And so at some point it comes down to capital allocation. And I do believe that marketers at scale really are capital allocators. Entrepreneurs at scale are capital allocators. Whether that capital is human capital, whether it's Revenue at scale, we are all capital allocators and you got to make the best decision based on the capital that's there. And so I don't remember where you came in, but we had essentially established what we believe to be a range of reasonableness. So not even fair, because fair is hard. It's kind of a loaded term. But from our perspective, on the low end, this is the minimum. And anything that we would even think we could get on the high end is here. I think you proposed a number and our deal is always if somebody proposes a number within the range of reasonableness, we take it. We don't try to negotiate back and forth unless something else came in. I think you proposed a number and we negotiated on terms a bit. But in general, when you fell within the range of reasonableness, I knew we would probably have a deal. So that's kind of the process. And I think there's lessons there for entrepreneurs in terms of acquisition. I think there's a bigger meta lesson there, though, that's important. Many of the people listening to this right now, if you're listening to this right now, there's a good chance that there's a conversation you know you need to have with someone with someone and you're putting it off because you say you're still thinking it through, 
But the reality is you kind of know what needs to be done. You just haven't pulled the trigger because it's going to be a hard conversation. I would just encourage you in my experience in life, anytime I'm sitting on one of those hard conversations, the person I want to have that conversation with, or rather I need to have that conversation with, they know it needs to happen too. And they're thinking along the same lines as well. And if you approach it with some kind of graciousness and humility and just say, hey, we need to have a conversation about this. Oftentimes you're going to see this sense of relief happen. It doesn't mean that it's always easy and that the outcome is always perfect. Our conversation have to be easy. And I think everybody still to this day is super thrilled with the outcome. That's not always how it goes down, but it's almost certainly not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be. They're thinking it too. So just have that conversation. If you guys don't mind, I just want to pause for a moment. And first, a compliment to you, Ryan, that will preface what it is that I want to say. I think you're the best I've ever seen at Frameworks. And I don't know if you come up with these, if you collect them, if you amalgamate them, but like, as I've learned from you, and it's been almost a decade that I've been learning from you, I've seen you come up, and I actually have a notepad here that I'm looking at. You had the growth triad framework. You had the 90-day game plan, the growth scorecard, the growth lever canvas, the customer value journey. Even the machine was a framework. And again, I don't know if this was off the top of your head or if this is something that you were pulling from legacy data that lives in whatever repository you're pulling your brilliance, but you just gave us a really phenomenal framework for valuing anything, but especially a company, when there's no rules engine. And I'm going to do my best to try to repeat that framework, and then maybe you can help kind of buttress what I heard you say was, and I picture a graph in my mind's eye, and you kind of have that standard line of demarcation where... First, you take the cost that it would take to sustain this entity, and then that stands as the variable. And then you find the number where anything beneath this threshold, it's actually worth me continuing to either outlay this cost or put it on ice. And anything above this threshold now becomes, and I love your range of reasonableness. And in worlds where there aren't frameworks for business valuation. And I think there's a lot of those. There's a lot of little things where it's like, I don't know what my list is worth. I don't know what this profile is worth. I don't know what this media property is worth. How could that not? I don't know what I should pay this person, by the way. What a great point. I don't know what this role is worth. Yeah, I don't know what this role is worth. I mean, oftentimes it exists. Go to salary.com, double check. Because I think also we create roles that don't exist and shouldn't exist. Um, but very <laughs> often, quite often. You know, <laughs> yeah, very often. Yeah, Guilty it, as charged. Yeah, very often it is something that's kind of unique. And so, yeah, no, it's all those things. I got to give credit where credit's due, by the way. The range of reasonableness I learned from my business partner, Roland Frazier. And Roland, who is a recovering attorney, he and I own a business together called Epic Network, where it's all about buying and selling businesses. Roland has this perception and this brand about him as being like this tough negotiator. Like you don't want to be on the other side of the negotiating table from Roland Frazier. What I know, because I've both been on the other side of the table from him a couple of times when we've been negotiating business partnerships and things like that, but I've been on the same side of the table with him dozens and dozens of times. That's how Roland does it. He's like, what is the range of reasonableness? What's the low end? What's the high end? And if somebody comes in with the, in the range, he's like, we're not going to argue. If somebody comes in on the outer end of the range, we're actually going to talk them down into, even if we're negotiating against our own position, we're going to try to talk them down into the range. Or we're going to try to learn why they're willing to pay so much more that we don't know. We're going to ask questions because if it's outside of our range, eventually somebody's going to wind up being unhappy. And if it's below, we're going to politely say, Unfortunately, that's we just can't go that low. Or if we're on the buy side, we can't go that high. So yeah, I think going into it, doing your research and understanding what is your particular range of reasonableness and the way that you assess the high and the lows is costing exactly what you said. I mean, it's going to be things like what's the opportunity cost if we keep it? What's the opportunity cost if we give it away? I think the most important question to ask is what else are we going to do with this money? If we're selling it, what are we going to do with the proceeds? And if we're buying 
Is there anything else that we could buy that would generate a higher return than this? And I think when you think about it like a capital allocator, it removes a lot of the emotions from it because it's hard. I hate selling assets. I do. I'm a hoarder. I'm a hoarder of companies and assets. It is so hard to get rid of them. But at the end of the day, we make money when we sell, not when we hold and not when we buy. We make it when you sell. So you got to freaking sell. This is going to get real personal. How many domain names do you own? Dude, it's way down. Really? Because I've gotten better. Okay. I, dude, I still, figured you easily. were like on a drip and you had to go to like dude, domain name anonymous. and. So not kidding. I don't even have a login to our domain to our oh, account anymore. You've been put through Richard intervention. <laughs> that's good. Oh man, I know I got a problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, at the time it was thousands at one point. Perry and I would sit up at the office. I'm not proud of this. We'd sit up at the office and like work and drink and just come up with stupid <laughs> things and, and would always just buy the domain name. I mean, and there were some. And spell them wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. One time yeah, we'd spell them wrong. Yeah. We thought we yeah. just crushed it. <laughs> and it's like, you look it up. It's like, you're an idiot. You just can't spell. You wake up the next morning. You're like, what did I buy last but, night? Because of it is still. Holy crap. I spelled it with a Q. Yeah, it's I didn't realize that. I, I'd say it's, it's over <gasps> 200, but I'd give the over under over 200 under 500. But there was a time when it was easily in the thousands. Like we had our own rep at GoDaddy. You don't really want your own rep at GoDaddy. It's like you don't want a disease <laughs> named after this. Like there's certain things you don't you want. A dedicated so, and it's not like I was a domainer. I was just an idiot. Yeah. As you were talking, it just, you know, when you're saying I'm a business hoarder, I thought to myself, I was like, this is a man with his own Can Spam Act compliant domains. Registrar. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten better. I've gotten better. I think an interesting takeaway of this before we head into commercial break and we figure out what else I'm going to be buying with that advertising dollar is that as soon as I started to realize what the actual value was instead of just like I had my CFO like running numbers and just figure out, okay, what's the actual value? It wasn't the intrinsic value. What could the value be? to you guys, all of a sudden it changed my frame. And I think this could be looked at two ways. And I said, first off, I trust these guys. Like I've been working with them for a long period of time. So that establishes a lot. And I think this is hard to do in a business negotiation where you look at their viewpoint as a negotiating tactic to try and get your price up as opposed to really trying to understand and thinking this through. Because it didn't take long. It was, it was like less than two weeks, as I recall. Like We figured out like the price and then we kind of got together and figured out, all right, what are the details of it? But it wasn't until I really realized, all right, this is more valuable to them than maybe we're pricing it. And then talking to my CFO who's done a fair amount of M&A work for KPMG. It's got a really solid background here. It's not just a logical thing. You got to figure out. And then on the other side, it's like, what's the potential value for me? And if those numbers somewhat match, like then you end up having a deal. And I think that's where my business mind changed as a result of that negotiation because we talked to private equity groups and Kasim has already sold his business. Like It's pretty hard and fast Like what the multiples are going to be based upon a couple of different factors. But with this, there was so much more to it. And I think as a business person, you do have to really look at the other person's side, not as just a negotiating tactic, but really what is the value to them. And I think that's what makes a good business deal. And it, it worked out well for everyone in the end. You got to seek to understand for sure. Hey, so should we talk about why we need to take a commercial break? What you specifically, Ralph, need to pay for? What am I buying next? Face toupees, ladies and gentlemen, face toupees. If you've seen Ralph in person, you should know the beard is not real. It is a face <laughs> toupee. 
This one, I'll be honest, is going a little gray as face toupees are oft to do. Some more face toupees yep. for Ralph Burns. Check out our sponsors. Get Ralph some more face toupees. We'll see you on the other side. Make sure that you do go over to perpetualtraffic.com and look up all the links that we left in the show notes. We'll leave links, obviously, to Traffic and Conversion Summit, as well as Get Scalable Live. That's October 2nd and 4th. Guys, I can't tell you, like, it's coming up fast. So grab your ticket to that. It's totally worth it. I went a couple of years ago, like I said before, it was absolutely amazing. And obviously, Traffic and Conversion Summit in Vegas. You guys are so big, you got to go to Vegas. So perfect time of the year for that. So much going on here. Make sure that you... First off, subscribe, leave a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell us what we can do better as well in either that review or over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. We still look at that every single week. Make sure that you check out uh, what we're doing on the socials for LinkedIn for me and then Kasim all over his socials and go back and listen to previous episodes and we'll leave links in the show notes for that. And make sure you check out our YouTube channel. Got to plug the YouTube channel, perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube and uh, all resources and show notes at perpetualtraffic.com. So thank you so much, Ryan Dice, for coming on here on today's show. On behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam. Peace. Until next show, see ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic, 